Hello and welcome. I hope you had a good summer and thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Sophie Kilvert. I'm a client advisor in the wealth management business here at Rothschild. We're presenting to you virtually again today, but we do hope to host you in person again soon. Today, we're going to cover a few topics that are relevant to the way we manage your portfolios. And thank you very much to those of you who have sent us questions already in advance. The words exceptional and extraordinary have been used an awful lot over the past year and a bit. And for me personally, 2021 is a year that's absolutely flown by. But it's been a fascinating one. It's a year where we've seen COVID surge and retreat and the extraordinary achievement of the scientists in developing the vaccines that may well lead us with a route out of COVID. So today we'll look at the prospects of this and also the impact that the pandemic is still having on our lives. Stock markets, as they often do, look forward. So while economies are still in recovery mode, major stock market indices are at all time highs. So we'll ask whether they've gone too far and are we seeing excessive valuations? And also we'll look at the threats to that recovery, one of which is tightening monetary policy. Now central banks have been reticent to do that so far, uh, possibly in fear of another taper tantrum, but we'll look at whether rising inflation might not give them that option. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Victor Balfour, our portfolio strategist, Hugo Capel-Cure, one of our portfolio managers, and David Miles, who's Professor of Financial Economics at Imperial Business School. Now, David's a member of the Commission of the Irish Central Bank, and also, between 2009 and 2015, was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. So thank you for joining me today, gentlemen. Uh, Victor, if I could start with you. You've obviously been assessing the impact of COVID incredibly closely. What's your take on where we are now? So I think the first thing to say is that contagion is still uh, at uncomfortably high levels. Um, we're now into what is widely considered to be the sort of fourth wave uh, globally. Um, certainly the sort of Delta variant has been quite key and central uh, to the flare-ups that we've seen at the moment in places like the UK, uh, the US and a number of uh, developing countries, particularly uh, in Southeast Asia. Now, for the most part, I think what we're seeing is that nationwide lockdowns have been uh, resisted this time around. Uh, we are seeing some restrictive measures, some social distancing measures reintroduced, but those nationwide lockdowns have been um, resisted. Now, part of the reason for that is that fatality rates, thankfully, are rising much more slowly this time, certainly in, in developed markets. Um, and of course, a big, big part of that is the kind of accelerated vaccine rollout we've seen to date. Um, if we take somewhere like US or, or the UK and Europe, over half of the population has been fully inoculated, much higher in the case of somewhere like the UK or even parts, parts of Europe. Um, of course, the sort of challenge, I guess, looking ahead and, and certainly what's coming very clear is that we haven't seen a very equal vaccine rollout uh, to date. Certainly a number of those sort of developing nations, uh, we're talking single digits as a percentage of their population have been sort of fully immunized so far. Uh, and so I think the sort of challenge now for policymakers is trying to get a more equitable vaccine rollout. Uh, there are some sort of commendable um, kind of initiatives on the table from various G20 members at the moment. I think a sort of another sort of broader point I would sort of raise is as we move into the sort of next phase, certainly for countries where the vaccine rollout's been somewhat more accelerated, we're moving into the sort of perhaps more endemic phase 
of the virus, this idea that we have to live with it uh, in some form. And I think um, through that lens, I think adaptation and tolerance are going to play a much bigger role in trying to mitigate the virus's effects longer term. Um, and certainly we're seeing at the moment in the UK here, you know, companies are still operating even as caseloads have surged. Um, workers are going about their everyday lives and consumers are for the most part um, still spending. Um, and so I guess through that lens, if, if that trend continues, that should hopefully reduce the virus's prominence uh, over time. And David, Victor there talked about learning to live with the virus. Uh, what's your views on the, the reopening strategies globally? What sort of scenarios do you think we're looking at? Well, uh, uh, I mean, they range from the uh, rather benevolent ones where there are no new, uh, even worse variants coming along. The proportion of populations that have some sort of immunity either from vaccines or because they've had the virus um, keeps going up a bit. The infection rates um, begin to drop even further and we return to something a bit more normal. I mean, we've got a long way back to normality in many European countries and here in, in the UK. And maybe we sort of smoothly continue back to um, something which makes the virus a, a kind of memory within a, a few years. Um, of course, at the other end of the spectrum uh, is the possibility of even more um, virulent variants of the virus. And uh, it's not inconceivable. I, I, I hope it doesn't happen. I don't think it's the most likely outcome. But it's conceivable, of course, that we get back in many European countries to very tight lockdown. And that could happen within the next few months. Who knows? Um, I think that's less likely. Uh, so I'm sort of vaguely optimistic, if, if you will. But the damage that's been done already uh, is enormous. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. And for you, Hugo, for the last 20 or so months, COVID's had to be a really essential part of when we look at the companies in which we invest. Is it still right up there or, or can we possibly now allow ourselves to, to look more broadly? Well, I'd, I was in a meeting uh, a few weeks ago and the client said to me, well done for predicting the pandemic. And the reality is we didn't predict a pandemic. What we did know is that something bad could happen to markets uh, and we're prepared for that eventuality. And in terms, of the, in terms of the companies, we've always looked for companies with strong positions in their respective niches, with good balance sheets as well. And it's these companies which have been able to weather the pandemic so far. And I think one of the most interesting things so far is that it's the, it's the stronger companies, even in the most impacted sectors, which have been performing well. So if we take airlines as an example, the airline uh, industry has been really enormously impacted by this, particularly, particularly in, in Europe. But that has created opportunities for some of the stronger carriers. So if you take an airline like, like Ryanair, they have been able to, to order a lot of extra planes from Boeing at extremely attractive prices. Uh, a lot of capacity has come out of the industry. They now have an opportunity to deploy those aircraft across Europe. Airports are coming to them because nobody else has any air planes that they can put anywhere. So what we're seeing is that even in the more difficult places that have been Im impacted by the pandemic, and I hope we don't see some more virulent um, strains coming through, the, the stronger companies within those industries are actually very, very well, well positioned. Mm. 
And it's interesting, Hugo, you, you talked there about the fact that we need to be prepared for, for anything, uh, not necessarily, no one necessarily predicted COVID and the pandemic, but you were prepared for, for something. Uh, David, you've sort of been in the centre of the storm before, if we think about coming out of the global financial crisis. Are there things that you learnt there that you think we can use again today that, that's still relevant as we, we see some sort of recovery? Well, I think, I think one thing that central banks learned was that um, going big, if you like, early on when it was clear that there was a major problem is the right strategy. And then reining it back in when things seem to have, uh, the storm seems to have passed or at least be passing. I think a question at the moment is whether or not central banks that certainly learned the first part of the lesson, go big early on in a, in a crisis. We saw that with interest rate cuts and obviously the scale of asset purchases has been enormous. I'm slightly concerned that some central banks may be uh, a bit slower to learn the second part of the lesson, which is that when the storm looks like it's passing, you rein back in. And we'll see later this week in the Bank of England, you know, quite whether their message has changed in the light of what's happened recently. And I suppose one thing that, that comes from that, therefore, and what central banks do, is this topic of inflation that is just very, it's coming through a lot now. People want to talk about it. People are understanding that actually we have lived with low inflation now for, for quite some time. I think it's interesting to look at whether this uptick that we're seeing in inflation is transitory. Is it there because of bottlenecks in supply, um, even sort of the, down to the, the lack of HGV drivers for base effects? Or, Victor, do you think we just need to get used to higher inflation? Well, I think it's important to say we're seeing, say we're seeing a very um, visible surge in consumer prices kind of globally. I mean, it's evident here in the UK, but also in Europe. Um, even more visibly in the US, inflation is running uh, close to 13-year highs at the moment. Now, I think some of that was quite well signposted. If we go back a year ago, spring of last year, many price of goods and services fell quite dramatically into the crisis. Um, rolling forward one year, it was inevitable, just as a consequence of arithmetic, we were going to see those base effects start to feed through into higher prices. But what we're seeing, I guess, now is we're sort of moving into the next, next phase of that story. Uh, those base effects are rolling off. And we're starting to see that as that demand story has picked up, um, some parts of the economy have reopened more quickly than others. And of course, that's led to some bottlenecks and pinch points, as you sort of alluded to. Uh, and of course, that's having upward pressure on prices. And there are some very visible categories out there which are surging. Semiconductors have led to uh, shortages of, of, of cars at the moment. Auto production has, has been hit. Um, we've seen um, shipping costs surge um, lately. Um, the cost of moving a 40-foot container um, across the ocean is now up fivefold since the same period a couple of years ago. Uh, and of course, uh, what we're seeing perhaps more worryingly is now signs of wage pressures building. Now, for us, I think there are a couple of things that we need to think about in terms of the sort of short and, and longer term uh, parts to this. Um, certainly, as we're seeing it today, the sort of supply and demand, demand imbalances we're seeing is proving to be more sticky than we might have anticipated. Uh, but our sort of working assumption is that some of those price pressures will start to ease as the sort of supply side starts to respond more broadly. Now, in the sort of short-term view, I think some things are directly a, a consequence of COVID. So if you think about factory closures in Asia, um, that's stretching some of those supply chains even further. 
Um, certainly as governments get control of the outbreak and we see more you know, equal vaccine rollout, that should uh, prevent those from becoming uh, such frequent events. On the other side of sort of input prices which are rising, commodities have been quite a visible uh, rising uh, input costs at the moment, particularly uh, things like uh, industrial metals. Um, what we know historically um, is that these don't always point to uh, lasting upward pressure on consumer prices. So certainly those, that side of it, you know, that's just, just as it probably is more transitory, more temporary. Longer term, I think the sort of labor market discussion is an interesting one. Uh, and certainly we are seeing evidence now of wage pressures building. Um, I think it's a pretty extraordinary turn of events because only 18 months ago we were talking about fears of mass unemployment and today we're talking about labor shortages. Um, uh, in the US, for example, there are, I believe, five jobs available for every four uh, unemployed Americans at the moment, uh, which is a pretty staggering statistic. Um, why this would be the case could be any number of reasons. It could be geography, it could be timing, it could be um, a skills mismatch. Um, it could even be uh, that workers aren't really willing to go back to inflexible, low-paid jobs. Um, but I think there is a counterpoint to this, and that's that government support schemes um, do have remained in place, and that's created this sort of uh, disincentive to work, if you like. Um, certainly a number of those are in the process uh, of rolling off at the moment, in the case of the US. Um, we've got the UK furlough schemes expiring at the end of this month. And so we could see a, a number of those workers pull back into the labour force, and that could prevent... Um, I guess, that, that wage pressure from building much further. Um, now, none of this means we're necessarily sanguine or, or relaxed about the inflationary story, uh, but we think the immediate pressures will likely, likely fade. Um, but of course, longer term, you know, if we do start to see uh, true full employment come back in and that spare capacity does start to disappear, then of course, you know, maybe, maybe those inflationary pressures could build uh, once again. Uh, but as we stand today, I, th I think it's, it's more of a long-term slow burn issue than a, than a short-term pressing concern. David, do you, do you agree? Do, do we have to learn to, to live with inflation for a little bit? Um, is it inevitable? Um, well, I suppose it depends what one means by a little bit. Mm. And even if you took the view um, that the supply disruptions are temporary, they're not the kind of thing that's going to go away in the next month or two months. They could well last significantly into next year. And then I think the question, as, as you were just saying, I very much agree with, with your line on this. The question then is, well, is the response in labor markets in a world in which the annual inflation rate might be four and a half, five percent in many countries, um, already is in the US, may well get to significantly above four percent in the UK. Is the labor market reaction to that one of, oh, well, this is temporary, will still settle for wages rising at you know, two, two and a half percent? Or is the reaction more, inflation is four and a half, five percent, um, we want six percent? Um, and that will depend, of course, on how tight the labour markets are. And I very much agree with you. It's, it's, it's remarkably surprising, to me anyway, that unemployment in many countries has returned to levels that we were at pre-pandemic. And that's certainly true in the UK. The unemployment rate in the UK is under 5%. I think most people at the beginning of the year were saying, well, it'll be, you know, 7, 8, 9%. Slack in many economies, certainly in the labour market, um, has all but disappeared on some measures. Uh, in the UK, we are at the highest level of recorded vacancies in, in modern history. That's remarkable. Uh, and so the idea that this 
almost certainly is a temporary blip in inflation. It'll all be over by you know, the new year. It seems to me remarkably optimistic, uh, indeed complacent. Uh, and I'm, I'm slightly surprised at the message coming from some central banks, which still seems to be slightly in, in the complacency mode. Now that may change, that may change, we'll see. Um, I suppose looking at those central banks, though, um, what, what are their options? What do you expect them to be able to do or actually to do, um, given that they do need to tighten, they need to withdraw some of that excess capital, possibly raise, raise interest rates? But how much room do they have to do that? Well, I think they have quite a lot of room. I mean, most the, the, the Fed, the ECB, here, the, Bank, the Bank of England are in, in many ways making monetary policy even more expansionary as we speak. I mean, they're carrying on buying assets. So, I mean, stopping doing that would be one way of making monetary policy at least not increasingly expansionary. And in the light of what's happening in labor markets and inflation, I would have thought that's an appropriate strategy right now. Now, they're not there yet. As I say, that may change in the very near term. But you don't have to you know, be in the camp of, well, interest rates need to go up significantly right now. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of other steps you can go through. But I think, I think a step in that direction of at least making monetary policy no more expansionary seems to me a sensible thing to, be, to do right now. And Hugo, I mean, inflation is this topic that we speak to with our clients a lot. It's in the headlines. Um, is it uh, positive for client portfolios or should we really be quite worried in terms of preserving our clients' wealth over the long term in an inflationary world? Well, so we have no choice but to think about inflation because, as you say, our mandate is preserving our clients' wealth in real terms, mm -hmm. i.e. after inflation. And it is, it is a risk factor. I mean, we aren't out and out inflationists, but certainly Victor and I talk a lot and Kevin as well. And we can see that some of these effects may not be transitory. Some of them might be, might be um, sticky. Um, so yes, we've been thinking a lot about inflation, certainly in the diversifying side of the portfolios. We've added a new fund called the Inflation Focus Fund, which um, it sort of gives an idea of what, of what that is about. Uh, and we've buying, been buying inflation-linked bonds there and also other assets that can benefit from an increase in sort of general inflation expectations. But, that, but that's only part of the story. It, it's also about the nature of the companies that are owned in, in the portfolio and thinking about how inflation could, could impact them. A good example of a company that's you know, probably a beneficiary of inflation would be MasterCard, credit card company, debit card company. Every time there's, there's a transaction, they take a slice of that transaction. So if the price of goods increases, then the transaction size increases and they take a slice of that bigger transaction. So we're thinking about inflation as a risk factor for portfolios and thinking about you know, how it impacts the whole of the portfolio and thinking about how we can find hedges as well. So again, rather than putting all of the chips on inflation, we're thinking about what if. And you, you mentioned there some, company, well, some companies that have obviously done very well over the last few months. Um, and, and Victor, the portfolios themselves that have had an extraordinary few years, um, we are seeing markets at all-time all highs yet again. That's sort of what we expect to some extent. But would you say they were overvalued at the moment? 
so I think we just need to look back at the past 18 months, first of all. This has been um, the second fastest uh, doubling in US stock prices on record, going back over 120 years. It was only the, the, the faster recovery we've seen was post the Great Depression when uh, stock prices fell a lot further to begin with. Uh, so it's been a very, a pretty remarkable period for stock markets. Uh, and of course, we haven't really touched on why this has been the case. It's, it's, it's been a very, very positive macro backdrop, you know, reopening economies, um, growth is, is kind of put above trend. We're seeing output now back above pre-crisis levels, uh, productivity surging, uh, and of course, we have a very benign and favorable um, interest rate environment as well. Uh, but of course, to the crux of your question, some people are now a bit concerned that uh, perhaps markets are looking overvalued uh, and too much of the good news um, is priced in. Now, I, I sort of share the view that valuations are looking expensive. Um, certainly when we look at uh, a number of metrics, they're close to some of their most expensive levels um, ever. And certainly in the case of something like the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, which is one of our preferred measures, the CAPE ratio, um, it's in the 98th percentile of all valuation levels going back over a century. So there's lots of sort of data suggests that we are in expensive territory. Um, but I think what we know about valuations is that they are um, a notoriously poor timing tool in the short term. Um, so even though we think that there's possibly some scope for a setback, I think valuations uh, often don't give you that read. Longer term, I think we're still pretty constructive on stock markets. Um, and I think uh, the reason we think that is probably for a couple of, couple of reasons. Um, the first is around um, the earnings backdrop. We've seen one of the fastest recovery uh, in recoveries in corporate profits this, this year, uh, and that momentum has continued. Uh, so we're going to see S&P operating earnings expanded about 60% this year, uh, one of the fastest um, changes we've seen in the past um, three decades. Uh, and of course, you know, with the sort of recovery in dividends that we've seen and that ongoing strong growth backdrop, um, certainly uh, that we could see prices move high and actually see a normalization in those valuations um, as that those earnings um, recover. The second thing is really around um, the opportunity set. Um, bond yields, interest rates are below current um, and prospective inflation rates. Um, even the sort of more speculative grade end of the sort of corporate credit spectrum, um, high yield is no longer offering you a positive, uh, a positive yield uh, if held to maturity in, in inflation adjusted terms. Uh, and so certainly when we think about the difference between uh, the yield on bonds uh, and on stocks, um, that tilts it firmly uh, in favor of that stock uh, debate. And certainly as we see it from here, prospective uh, long-term return for stock markets are still well in excess of inflation. Um, I'm not sure the same can necessarily be said of bonds. So you've painted a reasonably rosy view for, for the outlook. Is that one that you share, David? I certainly share the view that if you're asking which are the most overpriced and expensive assets in the world, I would look at the bond market much more than the, equ the equity market. It's, it's remarkable, coming back to the issue about monetary policy, it's remarkable to my mind how markets are pricing in such a gradual and slow tightening, you could call it tightening, you could call it normalization uh, in, in monetary policy and how cheap it is for governments to borrow. I mean, the UK government I'm looking out here, the debt management office, UK debt management office, just over there. Um, I mean, they're able to borrow uh, in real terms by issuing index-linked bonds at 10 or 20-year maturities at a real interest rate, not of plus one, not of zero, not of minus one, not of minus two, but minus two and a half percent, sometimes near minus three percent. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. After a period when 
the stock of government debt in the UK has now uh, just gone above 100% of annual GDP, something which a few years ago was, you know, people said, well, that's inconceivable. We're not going to do that. It would be a catastrophe. And here it is. Government could borrow minus 2.5% real interest rate. Now, how long is that going to last? I don't know. But um, I think government bonds issued by the sort of major um, sort of developed world economies look remarkably expensive to me. And in the light of that, I think stocks... Actually, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert on these things. You, got, you guys know more about this than I do. But you know, you've got to put your money somewhere, let's face it. You, know, <laughs> you could go and spend it or you could save it. If you're going to save it, I would have thought equities look better than most other things, which just look mm. remarkably expensive. That's my amateur view. <laughs> and Hugo, what's the impact of that? Does this, uh, do, do the current market valuations change the way you think about companies? Well, before I answer that, I just want to put everybody's minds at ease. We, we don't buy long-dated conventional government bonds and haven't for a number of years because they essentially tick all of the boxes for the perfect worst possible investment that one could own at some point. Um, so, I mean, I, I totally agree with that, uh, with that comment about the, over, the overvaluation of a bond market, and not just government bonds also, but most corporate bonds, and even the high-yield bonds, which are now yielding less than inflation, which frankly doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but, but coming back to stocks, um, yes, I mean, the air is getting thinner. The market has, has, has had a, a tremendous run, you know, off its sort of pan pandemic uh, lows of 18 months ago. Um, I mean, we construct portfolios bottom-up. We aren't buying whole markets or indices. We're, we're, we're buying individual funds and, uh, and uh, stocks. Um, but even in that context, when we do our appraisal of forward returns, that has two components. It's the underlying uh, earnings and dividends that we can, re we can receive from those companies and our expectations for, for growth uh, going forward. That's one component, the sort of operating component. And the other component is the starting point of valuation and what we think might happen over the next uh, um, few uh, months and years. And what we're now doing is we're seeing that we're having to take a haircut on the, on the valuations. So we still see attractive total forward returns going, uh, going forward, but that has been moderated a little bit by the valuation com component. So yes, certainly much prefer to own stocks than conventional bonds uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but within that, it's becoming harder to find pockets of uh, value. Mm -hmm. So I suppose after the, the few years we've had of really good returns in portfolios, is it one where we should look at, at maybe tempering those expectations for the future, particularly in light of possible rising inflation? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for tempering expectations, you know, particularly after we've had such a tremendous um, Run in, run in markets and, and performance uh, gen, uh, generally. So, yes, I mean, we still anticipate decent returns, but I, but I don't think we can generate these kinds of returns every year. And I'd just like to, to quickly touch on, on a slightly more geopolitical aspect of, of what's going on at the moment. We've seen China come up a lot in the news, and actually someone sent us in a question asking whether the, the impact of China, and particularly when we look at the, the, the submarine deal between the US, the UK, and Australia, and the tensions that's that, that that's caused. Victor, do you see that as being a, a, a problem, uh, or is it just simmering tension? Uh, well, I think, I mean, posturing geopolitical risk is a sort of fact of life when we look at that particular part of, of the world. 
I think there are other things going on that are also sort of rattling markets at the moment. There's a, an indebted uh, property developer uh, which is threatening to default on its debt and, and markets have reacted uh, quite badly to that. Um, but since February, there have been other ongoing sort of regulatory risks that have emerged uh, out of China. Um, interventions within the technology sector, um, casino, gaming, the private education sector, uh, all of these uh, have been subject to a crackdown um, from Beijing. And of course, since then, we've seen quite divergent returns in terms of how the markets have behaved. So uh, if we look at the investable uh, Chinese stock market, uh, that's down about 30% since February. Um, the sort of global stock market is up about 10. So there's quite a disparity in terms of the returns we've seen um, over that period. Now, I think we know that sort of regulatory risk has always been a sort of fact of life uh, when we look at China. I think what's unsettled investors this time is the speed with which uh, they can unveil uh, some, some very dramatic changes. Um, certainly, if we go back uh, three or four years ago, um, many of these sort of sectors were reasonably protected. They operated in a sort of low regulatory environment. Um, Beijing was trying to promote nascent industries and allow them to flourish against sort of big uh, kind of US tech giants, if you like, in particular. What we're seeing now is some of the sort of antitrust legislation is now coming in, uh, and certainly where, I guess, uh, Beijing's sort of social priorities uh, clash with market power in what its sort of its vision of sort of state capitalism, um, that's very much been the focus. Um, I think, I think from a sort of investment standpoint, clearly, uh, you know, this is tainted the sort of short-term picture, um, and clearly in the context of growth, which is slowing a little bit uh, in that region as well. Um, it perhaps means that tactically it's, it's a bit more challenging at the moment. Um, but I think longer term, we still see a strong case for the sort of broadly EM Asia region. Um, it's still one of the most dynamic parts of the, of the, of the globe. Um, most of the world's capital is going to continue to pivot there over time. Uh, and I think in the context of this recent setback, um, valuations are even looking more compelling. Um, so, so I think even, you know, for an economy which is probably more centrally controlled than most, I think as we see it, the sort of structural case is still uh, sort of broadly intact, even if that tactical one is, is probably a bit more challenged at the moment. And Hugo, obviously in, within the portfolio we have exposure to China. Has it made you rethink any of that? Uh, well, um, Victor and I were having a chat about this uh, real estate developer um, a few minutes ago called China Evergrande. Mm -hmm. And it's the second biggest uh, real estate developer in China. And actually, about three years ago, I was in the offices of the biggest one. And um, uh, next to their elevator, they had a sign saying in both Chinese and in English, um, life isn't fair, get used to it. And uh, we, were, we were sort of discussing the, the ramifications of that. Um, in, terms of, in terms of China, we actually took some money out of our main China fund last year because the Chinese market had been on a tear, the valuations were looking quite, uh, quite, uh, quite high, and, and we just felt that it was a bit overheated. So we, so we took some money back out. Since then, the Chinese market has come back sharply. This particular fund has come back sharply, uh, and we have just begun to nudge a little bit of money back in. And the reason for it is that most of the underlying investments are quite bread and butter companies. They're in things like the consumer staple space, in auto retailing, and the valuations have come back a long way, and the valuations now look attractive. So just sort of looking through the political noise, problems with, with, with the real estate sector, there is value in China now, uh, and we're just nudging money back in. Mm. 
And David, we've talked about some of the threats here. We've talked about inflation and, and China and the general geopolitical. Is there anything that particularly worries you at the moment as we kind of come out of, of the pandemic and, and start to see those economies recover? I think something, something that, that is a bit worrisome is that populations may come to expect that governments will always be able to step in massively support economies fiscally and with their central banks in a way that might be unrealistic. Um, I mean, here in the UK, we start now from a situation where debt is 100% of GDP. Um, the government has very uh, optimistic plans about levelling up, which are going to be expensive. There are huge backlogs in education and health. That's true in many countries. And so if there is a significant negative shock from somewhere, we never predict where it's going to come sometime in the next several years, the ability of the state in many developed economies to respond in the way it did to the pandemic and in the way it did to the global financial crisis 13 years ago, the ability to do that within the next five, 10 years, I think is much diminished and bringing the level of debt down and so establishing an ability of the state to respond again on the scale that it has done is going to be a very tough thing to do. People in the UK point at, oh, look what happened to the debt to GDP ratio after the Second World War ended or after the First World War ended. What they forget is that because of the massive scale of military spending, which then was cut off quite quickly after 1945, after 1918, it wasn't so difficult to bring government spending down hugely in a short period of time. And that's what brought the debt to GDP ratio down. It ain't going to happen this time. It's more difficult. Well, thank you very much. I think there's no doubt that the pandemic has changed all our lives in the short term. And I think it's going to be interesting to see which of those changes actually do become permanent. For us, as always, it's important to look through the noise. Markets are never quiet, but as Hugo said, we remain very much long-term investors and we really shouldn't be complacent about the high returns that we've seen lately. Our job, of course, is to preserve your wealth over the long term, so it's there for you when you need it. So our thanks today go to our panelists. Thank you for joining us and for your insights. And we're also very grateful for you two for dialing in yet again today. And we hope that we can host you in person next time. Thank you very much. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.